Hey Church of the Beloved, my name is Kevin Zoe and I'm the production manager here at COTV. Just wanted to say a quick thanks for tuning in to our weekly sermon podcast. Today's message is brought to us by our interim senior pastor, Abe Lee. He's preaching from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37 on our response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So on Wednesday night, Suzette and I, we were leading a time of prayer for the children in Zambia. We were doing this with our old church back in San Francisco. We we're doing it over Zoom, tech, doing technology. And, but we finished around uh, like 11 o'clock at night. Uh, and then the missions director who had asked us to do this, they informed us that Russia had just invaded the Ukraine. And then we, so we took time to pray for the people of Ukraine. I went downstairs afterwards. Uh, Suzette's in Singapore, so I went to clean up, clean up the kitchen. We just hosted small group that night. And I hadn't gotten a chance to clean up, load the dishwasher and stuff. And by the way, it's not because our small group is like rude and they didn't, they totally always offer to help clean up and I just tell them no. It's because I'll be very honest, cleaning is my happy place. I love cleaning, it's way how I decompress. Uh, and so I turned on the news on our radio. Just if you ever come to our house, you'll see I have an old school radio in our home, even has a cassette tape deck still, it's from the 80s. Um, but we turned it on, I turned it on to listen to the news. And I heard more about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. By the time I went to bed, I was, uh, I was praying. And I was asking God, what the heck? What's going on? This is crazy. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the largest military action in Europe since World War II, right? It's, and it's all because one person, Putin, has never gotten over the fact that Russia is not what it used to be. It's not as great as it used to be. He, he's been quoted as saying the conversion of the Soviet Union to Russia. It was the disintegration of historical Russia. Putin's a former KGB agent, and he, he's a fan of communism still. He's, uh, he's, he admits to still have his communist party membership card in his home. Right? I didn't realize it was actually a thing to be a card-carrying communist member. That's what he is. And this maniacal despot decides that he wants to make Russia great again, and he's willing to kill to do it. So when I woke up on Thursday morning, I was kept on praying and saying, God, you know, this is a big deal. But it seems so far away. Is this something that we need to think about and consider as a church, as a church of blood? Should we take a moment, at least as a church, to think through what a gospel-centered response is? And if so, what does that mean for us? What is the gospel-centered response? The truth is, yeah, we should take the time as a church to consider this, which is why I asked the prayer ministry to change our original focus that we had identified for corporate prayer to praying for the people of Ukraine. Uh, and thank you so much, Cindy, for leading us through that time. But then I also asked the question to myself, does God want me to take a short break from our current stewardship series uh, to focus on this global event? And I was reading this. There's a pastor, Vassal Ostiri. He's a pastor in Kiev. Uh, he's also a professor at uh, Kiev Theological Seminary. And the folks in the Gospel Coalition, they reached out to him, and he sent a message back. And part of the message said this. I'm just going to read it to you. It says, if the church is not relevant in a time of crisis, then it is not relevant in a time of peace. And during this critical moment, our church, which has about a thousand people attending on a normal Sunday, is also a place of service. And we've recently conducted, and this is still him, we recently conducted several trainings on performing first aid. People are learning how to 
apply a tourniquet, stop bleeding, apply bandages, and manage airways. These people aren't, these lay people aren't going to become doctors, but this is giving them confidence to care for their neighbors, if necessary. When this is over, the citizens of Kyiv will remember how Christians have responded in their time of need. And I read Pastor Ostiri's uh, message that he sent, and I, and I consider what is happening in Ukraine, and I stop to pray. And what I prayed for at that moment was an understanding of how we as a little church here in Chicago, over 5,000 miles away from what's happening in Ukraine, we have a church with fewer than 100 people who call this church their home. I ask God, how are we supposed to respond? How does a church of the beloved that exists to see the gospel transform people into spirit-filled disciples who know that they are the beloved of God because of Christ's Lord. How do we respond to the situation? Because it seems so distant. And I'll be very honest. I don't know. I really don't. I, I look at what the world's trying to do to stop Putin, you know, increasing the sanctions, monitoring cryptocurrency traffic to make sure that Putin can't get around sanctions, telling Putin you're a bad boy, you know, doing these things, and I look at them and think, what can I do? I honestly don't know. Now, I don't go on Instagram, I don't use Facebook even at all, but I've seen a few stories, more than a few stories in my feed on what's going on in the Ukraine. And I know that there we have, we even have folks within our church who have relationships with people in Russia and people in the Ukraine. I thought about that and I looked at these uh, posts and I thought, maybe this is the best way for us to respond. See, as Christians, you know, the very first thing and sometimes the only thing we can do and we must do is pray, to cry out to God. It's like the dad who brought, uh, brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus and said, hey, I believe, help my unbelief. In the same way, we need to cry out. I mean, the Apostle Paul, he wrote uh, to the Romans in chapter 8, verse 26, uh, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for, as we ought. But, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. As Christians, the first thing we're to, called to do to stand up against Satan is sometimes to fall down to fall to our knees and to cry to our dad in heaven. And if the words don't come, the words won't come, doesn't matter because the Father still understands us, the Spirit still intercedes for us, the Son still speaks for us. And we do the best thing. Sometimes the only thing that we can do is pray. And that's why I texted Cindy um, first thing on Thursday morning and asked her to shift the prayer topic. As I mentioned, we started with prayer. And today we're going to do something a little different. And maybe that's why God said, ah, oh, you don't need the internet today. But today we're going to do something different. We're going to end with prayer. We're going to spend time just praying as a congregation. We're going to cry out to our Father in heaven for the sake of the people of the Ukraine and for the people of Russia to plead with our God for their sake. Because the truth is, prayer is powerful. The other thing is this, though. Prayer is not intended to be passive. Because we must pray, we pray, we gotta prepare as well to respond to as God hears our prayer. Micah chapter six, verse eight, tells us how we're to respond when we pray. He says, he has told you what is good and what does the Lord require of you, 
but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Justice, kindness, humility. These are the hallmarks of the response to prayer. So what I want to talk about for just a moment is how we might show justice, kindness, and humility to the oppressed, and how we might show it to the oppressors as well. Because really, it's a very hard question to consider when we're praying for people that are so far away. I'll tell you, for Pastor Ostiti, um, the answer for him and his family is very obvious. They've decided that they're not leaving Kiev because they want to be used by God to advance the gospel, the good news of an eternal home where there's no more war, no more rumors of war, uh, an eternal home where the insurmountable, the inconceivable peace of Christ, a peace that passes and surpasses all understanding, where that peace is the norm. That's how they've chosen to show justice, kindness, and humility by staying in faith to minister to the most vulnerable and the most in need. And that's how they will demonstrate the gospel transformation as the beloved of God. Now the question is for us, for what about us? How do we respond as a church? And as I said, first response is always through prayer. The second response I think is gonna be this. I think it's through prudence. And I doubt many folks here use the word very much, prudence. It's a pretty boomer word, it's a very old school word, one that you might think or define as like, being overly cautious or maybe having a tendency to uh, a self-serving conscientiousness. In other words, you know, when you hear that, folks hear the word prudence and oftentimes people use it as an excuse to avoid doing good works. For example, I'm not gonna get involved because I don't think it would be prudent. But that was not the original intent of the word. That's not the biblical definition of prudence. See, prudence is supposed to be an awareness, an engagement with wisdom. Engagement with wisdom of an issue, around an issue, and a better understanding so that you know how to respond. Because ultimately, to be part of a solution, you have to understand what the problem is. I, I, we have more than a few mathematicians amongst us. I'm mean, not going to tell you which one, but I remember having a conversation with one of them. And this person specifically telling me, you know, the Oftentimes, the hard part of finding a solution to a math problem, a hard math problem, is understanding what the problem is, not finding the solution. Because if you understand the problem, you can find the solution. So to understand our response, we have to understand what it is we are being called to respond to. Prudence is doing justice, is loving mercy. It is walking humbly with our God with insight, with understanding of what is being addressed what we're called to do for, for the doctors amongst us. Let me use a, a, you know, an analogy. Prudence is to justice and kindness and humility. Prudence is to those things what steady hands are to a surgeon. It is a mandatory prerequisite. In our modern, very reactionary digital culture, it is absolutely the norm to respond quickly, to get a good sound bite out there as quickly as you can. And I'm not intending to throw shade at all to any of our beloved family who've been uh, posting and responding to the atrocities in Ukraine with posts and stories. Not at all. I think actually that's great. It's a great way to get engaged, to show your support. But I'm, I'm asking for those of you who are posting, do not fault those who may not be posting, instantaneously at least. Uh, because maybe their desire is to fully understand what was going on, what is going on before critically engaging. 
because there's a desire for prudence. In Proverbs chapter 29, verse 20, it says, do you see someone who speaks too soon? There's more hope for a fool than for him. See, our call is toward wisdom, towards a prudent response, but it is, is including a response. There, St. Augustine, he once wrote that uh, prudence is love that chooses with sagacity or wisdom. As Christians, we're called to love. So we are called to love. That means we have to master prudence as we love. The second, uh, the next idea as I was reading and preparing for today is unity. We must fight for unity. Psalm chapter 133, verse 1, it says this. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 to 14. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. We're called towards unity. We are reminded that those suffering in the Ukraine are part of our body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26 says, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You know, you don't have to be a Christian to understand the beauty, the power, the importance of unity. Back in 2001, after 9-11, I, I remember watching all 150 uh, members of Congress standing on the Capitol, uh, steps of the Capitol building, and they were singing, God bless America. If they're doing it now, it'd be a little cringy, but at the moment, it was powerful. This act of unity was intended to show the world and show our, uh, Americans the resolve of the nation to, to be okay in spite of the attack. Well, I was working in New Zealand for a while, and I remember going to an all-blacks uh, game. It's a rugby team. And I can't remember who they were playing or even who won, but what I do remember is the haka. And if you're not familiar with this, the Hakka is uh, a Maori, and Maori are the indigenous group of New Zealand, but it is a ceremonial Maori war dance. It includes chanting and declaring power, there's foot stomping, oh, that actually hurt my back. Uh, there's tongue wagging, there's crazy eyes. There were thousands gathered in this stadium and we were hushed in awe as we saw and we heard and we experienced their unity as they did the Hakka. Another goofy example came to mind. Years ago, Suzette and I were in Vegas with friends, and we went to watch the Jabberwockies. And they were doing an amazing show. I mean, we were just so amazed to see how them, if you don't know who they are, I'm sorry, they're great. But they were moving with such precision together in unity. It was amazing. This crisis that's facing the people of the Ukraine, they are not facing it alone because we are united with our fellow, fellow image bearers of God against the forces of evil and of darkness that's being brought upon them. So this crisis is not only their crisis, this crisis is our crisis. Listen, I know that these passages I just read about are, are about the body of Christ, right? And that's going beyond that. And, and, and we are unified as the body of Christ. But I also believe that amongst those suffering today, right now in Ukraine, there are those who have recognized the voice of God. And there are those who have been chosen 
to eventually hear and recognize the voice of our good, good Father. And we must stand united with them in this oppression so that they might have every opportunity for redemption. Because in our unity, we need to live just as Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 and 20 says, 27 28 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So I'm going to ask you to make your post. Stand up in protest. We saw them downtown yesterday. Send out your messages. Be unified together as we strive to live a life that stands firm in one spirit with our family in Ukraine. So that when this is all done, the faith of the gospel might be made real in the lives of all who are fighting with Ukraine and all those who are fighting against Ukraine. So that both the oppressed and that the oppressors might not be able to deny, deny that our God is mighty, and our mighty God unifies us. So we pray, we prepare with prudence, we stand unified. Here's the last thing I want to mention before we sit and spend some time praying. Be ready. Be ready to take in the sojourners, the refugees. There are experts that are estimating that up to 5 million refugees are now fleeing Ukraine because of the invasion. I was reading something from the Jerusalem Post. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, there's this thing called the right of return in Israel. And it affords Israeli citizenship to any Jew making aliyah or immigrating to uh, Israel, into the country. And the Post, the Jerusalem Post says that they are preparing for up to 200,000 Jews to return to Israel because of this. The reality is this. War produces refugees. Those who have to flee for the sake of their families, for the sake of their lives, and many of them might end up here in the U.S., in Chicago. More than likely, it's going to be the countries that share a border with Ukraine, or Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, uh, Romania, and Moldova. These are countries that, that will likely receive the most. They've actually changed their historical opposition to refugee resettlements, they've changed it so they can support and receive Ukrainian refugees. The EU, they pledged to process the refugees. And U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID, they've also pledged for logistical and financial support, and this, that's because they do believe that the majority of refugees will stay on the European continent. But not all. Some of them are going to make it here. And we need to consider that. We need to consider what, if anything, we can do in response when that need happens, if that need happens. I was preparing for this, in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 19, there is a passage there that says this, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the peoples shall say, Amen. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 21, it says, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, it says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, 
for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. It's pretty clear that we're called to as a beloved of God. We're called to care for the refugees, the soldier, the stranger. We're called to live our lives considering those who are in need as more significant than ourselves, treat them as our neighbors, as family, as united. There's a story of the Good Samaritan that, from Luke that Stacy read. And Stacy, thanks for making it just in time to get, um, get a chance to read it for us. <clears throat> and in this story, you've got this guy, this individual. He appears to be a pretty devout Jewish lawyer. He's pretty good at following the law. Uh, he knows that you're supposed to love God and love your neighbor. But then he asks the big question, the real question. Who's my neighbor? And I think, in other words, I believe he was asking, do I really need to love everyone? Or, or just certain someone's, is that okay? Just people with my skin tone, with my religious beliefs, with my cultural heritage, is that enough? Jesus said, no. Because he makes it really hard for this young Jewish scholar with this story. Because in Jesus' example, in this story, it's not the Pharisee, it's not the Levite, it's not his countrymen who stepped up and act neighborly. It was the Samaritan. And then Jesus asked, after telling the story, asked the dude, so who was the neighbor in my story? Who treated this injured, battered, beaten person who was left for dead? Who treated this guy like a neighbor? Who treated him like family? And the lawyer's response is quite telling. His response is the one who showed him mercy. The guy couldn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He couldn't get it out of his mouth. The neighbor that followed the call to love the one was the one that he most hated. The neighbor we are called to love is the one most unexpected. The neighbor is the person who's different. The neighbor is the one that doesn't look like me. The neighbor is the one that doesn't talk like me or, or act like me or dress like me or believe like me. When Jesus told this story, Jesus was showing the lawyer and showing us the desire of God's heart for his beloved to show tenderness, to, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God, to welcome the sojourner, the refugee, as, as Christ. It is showing us an ethic of justice for the vulnerable outsiders, for the sake of the gospel. It is a demonstration of God's common grace in action, because it wasn't a Jew that helped the Jew, it was a Samaritan a hell-bound, dirty mongrel of a people group that was hated by the Jews. That's who helped a Jew. See, we cannot assume an unwarranted piety just because we have faith. No, we must, in our faith, fight for piety, fight against the tribalism that will cause us to, to circle our wagons and keep the outsiders out. Because that type of tribalism it is not at all what God intends or desires. God's desires all to know him, all to proclaim and to claim the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sake. And that cannot happen if we close the doors on those who need help physically and who need him spiritually. If you look at this, it's going to cost us if we do this. The Samaritan took out two denarii, which is the equivalent of two days' wages and said he would come back again later to pay off the balance with the innkeeper. It cost him money, it 
cost him time. And the Samaritan literally did not even know the guy's name who he just helped. He didn't know the victim's guy at all. He just knew that there was a person in need and he acted upon that need. Being the neighbor, being the family that God has called us to be, is going to cost us. But it's what we're called to be. We used to have a former staff person, y'all may remember, some of you may remember him. Uh, it was our former production manager, the guy before Kevin, our previous, uh, pre-Kevin, his name was Gavin. Uh, he left last year. I think he moved to Tennessee. This is not being recorded. He's never going to see this. Uh, but he, I think he left to uh, live closer to his wife's family. They were about to have a baby. And they also wanted to establish a new home base because they're preparing to go into the mission field. Their passion, their heart is to serve the refugees, to work with those who, like the guy who was robbed and stripped of his possessions, to work with the refugees who've been ravaged by the war because Gavor and Liv took to heart the work of the Samaritan and decided that this is what God has called them to do. I didn't get a chance to talk to the staff uh, before I called the audible and changed our topic and a bunch of stuff for today's message. Uh, I literally told Jonah this morning uh, that we're going to be spending time praying. and I didn't actually finish today's message until this, this morning as well. Uh, I'm not sure, and I didn't get a chance to talk to Eiji about this, I'm not sure where we are with the Afghani refugees and the support that we uh, wanted to give them with regards to the transplants to the Chicago area. But they're the first group that came to mind for me as I considered this potential next refugee crisis that might hit our shores. I thought of the Afghani refugees who've been uprooted from their language, uprooted from their culture, uprooted from their weather, uprooted from their friends, beaten, stripped of their possessions, in need of Samaritans who will step up and show mercy, show love, justice, walk humbly with our God with them. How those refugees and how the refugees that might come from Ukraine are in need of Christians who will step up so that they might see the glory of God through our lives. So we pray, we prepare with prudence, we stand unified, and we make ourselves ready, potentially to take in the sojourners somehow. Because we want to make Pastor Ostiri's words, we want to do what we can to make it true. When he says, when this is over, the citizens of Kiev will remember how Christians have responded in their time of need. Truth is, the church is not going to fight this war like the nations are. Um, sanctions and bullets and everything else. But the church, including ours, we have a role to play in this struggle. And our role as a church is to be prudent by being aware, being informed, being wise as we engage. Not sit by, but as we engage, whatever that looks like. Not use prudence as an excuse to disengage. And the church must fight in the struggle by being unified with the body of Christ. The church must fight in the struggle by being ready to shelter the weak, serve the suffering, mend the broken. This is how the unshakable truth and the undeniable hope of Jesus and the good news of his perfect redemption will be made known. Because it's for such a time as this that we are here in this place at this time. Thank you for tuning in to this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us, you can visit our website at cotb.life.
God bless and have a great week.